Welcome to episode six of Glorious Professionals brought to you by GORUCK Media. And tonight in this era of disruption, we're gonna talk about community building. I'm Jason McCarthy. And I'm Richard Rice. Special forces throughout the, the time that I've known them and the time that they've existed in America have always been community builders. And one of the people that we know that's really been involved in that is a guy named Blaine Smith. Very smart. He's worked through that with the military. He's worked that in the civilian sector. And tonight we've got him here to talk to us about community building. So let's get started. Welcome to the show, Blaine. Thanks, man. Good to see you. Yeah, it's always good to get to spend a little time with you. And tonight, what we really want to go deep on is, is community building and sort of view you with, with your past as, as a Green Beret and as former executive director of Team Red, White, and Blue, and then through Go Rock, and then just that sort of way of life that, that you've been on really the, the cutting edge of since forever, you know, how that's going to apply to where we are now, which is just kind of chaotic in, in that regard. Yeah, I don't, I don't pretend to have any answers going forward, but I think we can certainly learn a lot from what we've done in the past. So we'll do our best. Yeah. And so that, that's a good point though. We're not here to kind of pontificate about, you know, Hey, we've got our exact lat long of where the whole universe is going. Sometimes it's just about asking the right questions. How do you think about stuff? Let's just start with kind of your, your past as a, as a green beret or wherever you want to kind of pick it up and, and talk about the role of, of the green berets and, and community building. Yeah, I'll maybe I'll maybe even start a few years before um, before I got into special forces. I was a scout platoon leader in the big army back in the first cavalry division, and I spent a long tour in Iraq in 2004. And I wasn't you know working as a special operator at the time, but it was sort of the early days of the war, and it was a bit like the Wild West, especially out where we were, kind of in the rural area between Baghdad and Fallujah. And I I learned a lot, um, most of which I learned the hard way as a 25 year old platoon leader just out there with Humvees and no doors and no interpreter for months in the, in the early days, just kind of trying to figure it out and, and trying to get to know people out in this rural area of Iraq um, where we didn't really have any intelligence. We didn't really know what was going on. And I was literally just basically a kid out there with 18 of my buddies on six Humvees um, trying to identify where there were weapons caches, where there were places that we could interdict weapons going back and forth between Baghdad and Fallujah trying to figure out where guys were launching rockets and mortars at the green zone and at biop. And it was, um, I didn't know at the time, but that was really the beginning of my education, uh, in unconventional warfare and in special operations. Cause even though I was just a regular old kind of muddy boot Lieutenant out there in the big army, um, we were having to employ, you know, every, every tool we had in our bag to make friends, to earn trust, to, you know, learn a few words of Arabic, to get people to point us in the right direction, to, run traffic control points without pissing everybody off all the time and getting IED the next day that we went out there. And it was, it was really hard. And I had a chance in doing that to work with a bunch of guys from the fifth special forces group um, that were just studs. They were awesome. And the staff sergeants were guys that I would have, you know, followed into battle anywhere. And I was supposed to be in charge of what was going on. And uh, they sort of showed us how to do it. They had guys that would go out on missions with them. They had, you know, good intelligence as to where things were, which was very different than us. We were out there just kicking over rocks and busting in doors and generally um, finding a lot of screaming women and, and children behind them. 
And uh, these guys were getting us onto targets where they're actual bad guys. They were pointing us to culverts where they're actually, you know, bombs and guns buried. And um, that was really sort of my start in it. Um, and I leave that out of the story a lot of times because I did spend some time in third special forces group and I spent some time in Afghanistan and certainly learned a lot in that capacity. But I think I really learned um, what this life was all about way back then. Yeah. So, so how did they do it? What are the principles? Was it just, you know, magic? You just show up with a, with a bag of cash and you just buy everything you want because you're America. Is that how it works? Yeah, it would be, it would be cool if it worked that way, but it didn't. I mean, these guys were the hardest working dudes on the battlefield. And I mean that sincerely, they were, first of all, the first guy I met was a medic. Um, he told me his name was Forrest. I'm not sure if that was his name, but he was a medic. He spoke really good Arabic and he was able to get out there and get on targets and talk to people. And he wasn't just a, like a stormtrooper. He'd go out there and we'd be pulling people out and zip cuffing people and doing what you have to do on a target but he had an, an amazing way of doing sort of what you would call like a battlefield interview or these sort of light interrogations where he was getting people to talk to him and figuring out what was going on and reassuring people that were on these massive objectives that were just full of multiple families and was really able to figure out a way to get some clarity in the chaos and control the situation and get to where we needed to get to without it just being like, you know, trying to hit a ant pile with a 2000 pound bomb, you know, which was essentially all we knew how to do at that point. But then we would get guys off targets, go back, process them, do spend, you know, you stay up the whole night filling out paperwork and all that crap. Right. And these guys would, would be making meetings with informants at 7am the next morning. I mean, I don't know when they slept or what they were doing, but they were running what we used to call full spectrum operations. Right. And this is one thing that makes green berets really special is to my knowledge, it's the only special operations unit that can sort of run full spectrum operations, meaning you're out there training the indigenous force, collecting intelligence of what's going on on the ground, building targets, ramping up to hit those targets, fighting alongside your counterparts, prosecuting targets, exploiting the intelligence you get from those, and then going right back into the loop of trying to build that over again. And it was amazing to see a handful of guys that were able to sort of run that whole show. Does that remind you of anything that uh, you've ever done, Rich? <laughs> well, I, I am glad that you mentioned the the Fifth Legion. Uh, that's being my home unit. That's that's very near and dear to my heart. And those guys are uh, there's some terrific guys. There's guys terrific all across special operations, as has been proven over the last few years. Not just them, but that that kind of understanding, working with the people. And when you walk into a, a village like you're talking about, and I can remember doing it in Vietnam and some other places, when you go into the village, they understand that you are a threat, but at the same time, you need to show them that you're there to help them, that you want to work with them by, through, and for. That's what it boils down to, that you move to them, you assist them in what they need, and that means you have to really listen. What a lot of people don't do and what a lot of people aren't doing right now is listening. You need to listen to the people of the community. That's the most important thing you can do. And if you listen to them, truly listen to them, not, not listen to what you want them to say, but listen to what they're saying. That makes the difference. What is the life or death importance to you in community building? You're, you're there, you're a Green Beret, you got a gun. Why do full spectrum stuff? Yeah, so I'll, I'll spin it forward and give you an example of my time in Afghanistan with third group. We lived out at a place called Firebase Anaconda that was 90 kilometers from the nearest friendly position. There literally wasn't a road there. You could get there by helicopter and that was kind of it. 
And it was in the middle of a, of a river valley that was, at least at the time when I showed up, was generally just kind of surrounded by Taliban. And the way that we survived is that we had a relationship with not only the Afghan National Army Battalion, which was so-so. We had a little bit of a relationship with the police force, which was so-so. But we had 90 Afghan security guards that were sort of like, you know, the, the SF version of the guys that teams had been there over years and had kind of trained up and built a relationship with. And they lived on our firebase with us. We had a 200 by 200 firebase with like 15 Americans out there that far away from, from friendlies. And the only thing that kept us safe day in and day out was the fact that we had a, a genuine sort of trusting relationship with our Afghan security guards, our ASG that any given night when my team went to bed, um, if they had taken their guns and, and stopped them from pointing outside the walls to keep us safe and just decided because they got, they got a better deal and they wanted to turn those things around and point inside, we were toast. That would have been it. I mean, you can take the 12 toughest, baddest dudes you know. You walk out into that valley of Afghanistan, you don't make it two days. There's just no way. You got nowhere to go. There's too many bad guys. It is impossible for anybody to make it out there without some help, without a community. And we did that in tons of ways. So there's, you know, there's sort of the obvious kind of SF ways of doing it where we're paying these guys, right? We're keeping their families fed. We're giving them some little kickbacks and letting them sell our oil drums down in the markets and make a little extra cash, right? We're doing those things, but we're also playing volleyball with these dudes. We're walking across the street for the for the soccer game and cheering on kind of our guys against the dudes from the next village over. We're sitting down and having a meal with them. You know, you have the the one million cups of tea to make this kind of thing happen. I mean, it's not automatic and it's not going to happen with a paycheck. You've got to figure out a way to get these guys to understand you and to to let you in a little bit because it's a hundred percent trust at a certain point. And we always say like you can't ever a hundred percent trust and you you trust them as you know trust but verify and all that stuff. But like. Whether you think you're doing it or not, you're trusting them because you're not making it otherwise. I mean, you, you have to make friends with them. You have to build rapport. Yeah. And so how much do you have in common with these folks? And what I'm getting at is when you start to say, compare that to your, your neighbors in Tampa across the way that, you know, you think they're so different, right? And maybe they're not quite that different, but here you are, you're in Afghanistan. You don't have a lot in common with just an average person, except maybe you do. Yeah. So we've, we've said this for a long time and I, and I know it to be true that we have a lot more in common than we do different. Um, and I think that's really kind of true the world over. It can be a little harder to get to sometimes because you don't have the sort of natural kind of level of acceptance or trust built up because these people don't look like you. They don't speak the same language. They don't come from the same background. So there's certainly a lot that appears different at the onset, but deep down, I mean, most of these folks are, are fundamentally the same when you get down to, they care about their family, they care about their well-being, like to have a future. Um, and you can connect with people on that level pretty easily, to be honest with you, whether it's showing them pictures of your kids or just asking them how their kids are doing. Um, even engaging with the kids that are out in the village. I mean, there's a lot of things you can do to let these folks know that you're a human being. And look, this is the same, by the way, like you mentioned having neighbors, but what about having coworkers? Like if you're the CEO of a company, Jason, like your folks need to know that you actually care about them, right? Like how are your kids doing? Do you show up at things? Do you come to the pool party on the weekend? Like, are you giving them time off so they can do the Cub Scout thing? Like these are the, the levels where you've got to connect to really build the sort of community or build the trust to where you're actually going to be able to sustainably work well together. And if it's all just based on 
we have the same color skin or we live in the same neighborhood and we can afford the same kind of house. Like that shit ain't going to work. I mean, presence implies interest, right? The biggest falsehoods of a perception of the military is that it's completely based upon rank, right? I outrank you. I can just tell you what to do. And if you want to, you can force someone to do stuff. Hey, do it. And if you spend your whole life telling people, do it, do it, do it, you're, you're not going to go very far. And so presence implies interest. It, it is as simple as, you know, be nice, engage people about their lives. Who doesn't love their kids? I mean, ask someone about their kids. Hey, how's Penny doing? Right. Stuff like that. And like, those are just normal. If you're going to spend the time to talk to somebody, you might as well get to know them a little bit. If you get to know them, you're building rapport. If you're building rapport in war, they're less likely to shoot you. I mean, these are kind of lessons that we also learned in, in seer school, right? I mean, you want to humanize yourself. Like you want to be a person, a real person. Insofar as you're, you're able to do that, you're kind of laying this groundwork for a community or a relationship. Yeah. So the word you just said there, I think is the most important one is having a relationship, right? Because there's all kind of parlor tricks you can use. And we get taught these kind of things in training, right? To, you know, establish common ground, build rapport, right? Like there are a lot of ways you can do those things, but when they actually uh, bear fruit is when you develop a real relationship and you actually have, you know, sort of a real trust, then you can start building community. Because it's one thing to say, hey, how are the kids? It's another thing to actually care how their kids are doing, right? And so at some point, you're going to take some action to display that you actually care. And whether that's like getting them a birthday card or giving them a little time off if their kid's sick or whatever, like you, at some point, you've got to be able to get over that hump to go from being a, a skilled operator in human intelligence collection to being someone who genuinely cares about the people that they're going to be working with. And, and people are pretty good at sniffing that out. Yeah. So, okay. So as, as just sort of a foundational thing, right? How do, how do we define community? not only wartime community, which is trust and friendships, but how do we define it at a more macro level? Yeah. So I was thinking about this earlier today, kind of in prep for this, because, you know, you and I have worked, we've literally worked on this. This has been our life's work for years. So like we think about it, we talk about it, we've written about it, we've built organizations around this. And yet it's, it's a little slippery. It's hard to say exactly what it means, partially because the word's just kind of bandied about now, like, you know, Facebook is community and like everything's community. And you're like, okay, so here's what I came up with, and you can tell me what you think to sort of reset this a little bit. I was thinking about the situation we're in now. So in April 2020, COVID-19, we're all kind of still locked down. And it's occurred to me that for the most part, you can get the necessities of what you need to survive by sitting in your house, right? You can order Amazon, you can get your groceries shipped, you know, you can watch movies on your, on your TV, uh, in terms of just straight survival, if you just want to keep getting enough calories and breathing, you probably don't need to leave your house, right? And I think what, what's happened is it has lulled us into this sense of thinking that like we can survive and thrive without ever leaving our houses, right? Except we can't. That is for sure not the case. And I think we're starting to realize that now as people are starting to feel cooped up and they're starting to feel lonely and isolated. And so I think there's, there's something there to dig into. But the word I came up with that I like, and I would be happy to dig into here is interdependency. So to say that we're connected, and you and I talked about this a few months ago when I was up there in Jack's, like on social media, and even in like a, like a running club or things that we do in person or a ruck or a go ruck club, right? Like we can be connected. And that's valuable. It matters to have connections, whether you want to have them for business or personal, or you're in need, or you just want to feel like you belong. 
connections are important, but I would say that most of what we're doing with those kinds of things, when we talk about community is actually what I would define as connection, which is valuable, but it's not everything. And I wouldn't define it as community. I think when you cross over the threshold and you get into community, I think there's got to be some level of interdependency, meaning I am useful to you and you are useful to me. And we are able to to some degree rely on each other to have like a one plus one equals three type thing, right? And so if, if I'm out there trying to, let's just say I'm trying to re-landscape my lawn, that's a terrible job to do by yourself. It's hot. <laughs> it's, a big, it's a big job, right? If I have one other person to help me do that, I can do it more than twice as fast, right? And then what's, what's great is then when my neighbor has something he needs to do, I can help him and he can get it done more than twice as fast. And sort of like the, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And I think we have to be willing to sort of put ourselves in a position where we're, we acknowledge that we have some interdependency on our neighbors, on our friends, on our family members, of our coworkers, you know, our teammates, our indigenous forces. Like there's got to be some exchange and there's got to be like, you got to expose yourself a little bit and, and create a little bit of vulnerability to say, I actually need something from you. And I'm willing to acknowledge that. And I'm very happy to offer some value in exchange, right? And we can be here for each other. I think when you start seeing people do that, that's when you have community. Like the joke I used to always use, but I wasn't really joking, was that you knew when you had a legitimate Team RBB chapter, if someone posted in the Facebook group that they were moving and people showed up, that's community. Because moving sucks and everyone knows it. And, and that's why the army is really good at this, right? When something really sucks... They try to build rapport around that or rapport just naturally kind of happens because it sucks and you're in the suck together. And so you get hard chargers and team guys. It's like, if someone's moving, it's a badge of honor to show up. And it's it's cool when you can, when you can build that and people will show up for you with, I mean, what do you get out of moving your buddy's furniture? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what you get on a team in my, in my personal opinion is that you get that sense of shared trust that when I'm one man through the door and I decide for whatever reason that I'm going left, I have full confidence that the next guy's right on my ass and he's going right. And he's not going to let me get shot in the back, you know, and we get to, we to do that in a bit of sort of a a cycle when you're in the special forces, right? Cause you go out and you train and you learn to trust each other and to depend on each other in your training. And then you have this whole culture that we've built around it, right? Where your families all know each other and you barbecue every weekend and you help each other move and you reinforce that. And then that gives you more confidence when you go back into training, go back on the battlefield that you're like genuinely there for each other. You literally have a community built within that team. And that's what our neighborhoods could use a little bit more of certainly, right? That's what our workplaces could use more of is that like, yeah, we may have to work together to get this project done at work and meet this deadline. But then how are we reinforcing that outside of that one little finite example? And then how does that feed back into us being even better the next time we have to go on the objective at work, right? And to me, that, that's a big, big difference between feeling like, you know, we're in the same Facebook group and I commented when you needed a plumber and I liked your picture when you posted it of your kids. Like, it's cool to be connected in that way, but there's no interdependency there. Like, you're not really relying on each other for anything valuable. So is, is it fair to say, because it is for me, that the, the special forces community and specifically at the team level is, is the gold standard for community, at least in my life? I, th- I think it's at least a gold standard, right? I mean, in my, in my life as well, that's what I would sort of hold up as the best example of it. I'm sure 
you know, the world over. There's lots of other great examples that could probably match it, but I, I don't know of any. I mean, you, you can also say, look, your, your family's a community depends up, upon your definition. So, you know, you and your dog is a community of two. I've been there, right. It was, it was a great, it was a great community for what it was. It was, yeah. there was a lot of interdependency there. And so, you know, when you, when you look at that and what I've spent a fair amount of time doing is kind of dissecting that and the big components of it that work and, and how that applies and doesn't apply to where we are now. And I, I mean, now COVID, but now just even broader. I mean, how much privacy do you have on a special forces team? How much are you allowed to be an individual? H how much are you allowed to keep secrets? Stuff like that. And, and is there strength in kind of submitting to the team? Yeah, no, I think there, there certainly is. And like, this is the big difference. And I don't want to like, you know, become a linguist here, but like, there's, this is the huge difference between interdependency and codependency, right? Like codependency is when like two people are helping each other be their shittiest, right? And you're just like, oh, it's okay. It's okay. I'm just going to keep helping you be your shittiest because it makes me feel better about me. Interdependency is where one plus one equals three, right? You and I can flip a much heavier tire than I could flip by myself or that you and I can flip separately, right? So there's a lot of power in saying like, I need you guys, in order for me to be the best version of myself. And I'm willing to acknowledge that. And I'm willing to give up some of my individuality, perhaps, or maybe it's not even individuality, is it is just sort of like doing what you want to do whenever you want to do it, right? It's, it's not going to work that way. Because look, I would say on a team, you're still allowed to be who you are. Like every team has their characters, right? Rich, I'm sure you know this. My God, I can't imagine the examples you've got. Like, you still rely on guys to be who they are and to bring the strengths and the experiences that they have to the table. And, you know, you need your guy for comic relief. You need your guy to, to, you know, slap you on the back of the head and get you moving. You need for guys to still be who they are, but you have to basically submit to the notion that the team is more important than you. And as a team, you will always be better than you could ever be on your own. Cause you get a lot of guys early in the pipeline that think I'm just the baddest dude out here and nothing can break me. And then they get about, you know, one day into your school and they realize I can be broken. That's where the message for me was, was delivered the clearest in my training was being a captain in SEER school and seeing a guy that I was in charge of getting throttled and knowing it's my job to go help him right now. I should be out there trying to rescue him and, and realizing I'm too weak. Like I'm too tired. I'm too beat down. I have to sit here right now and watch this and take and take a knee and it crushed me to not for once in my military career be able to run to the sound of the guns and look out for one of my guys because I was just too beat down, too tired. And I had to just take a breather. That was a hard, hard feeling. But it was an important one for me to acknowledge because it made me realize you're not infinitely tough. You're tough, but you're not infinitely tough. And you better, get, you better realize that. There's a lot of strength that comes from a man's got to know his own limitations, right? And so, Rich, you know... In this kind of separation between the individual and the team, I mean, you, you had this great quote, it's always stuck with me, always, because it, it put everything into perspective. You basically said, to be a great teammate, first you have to be a great individual. Well, this whole conversation goes back to something that Blaine said just a little earlier, and that is the word vulnerability. You have to accept and admit your own vulnerability. Probably the most important thing that I ever learned was my first team sergeant. When I reported to him, I was hot stuff. I mean, I was, I was the man. 
I knew everything that had to be done at every point in the, in the operation. And he called me in and he said, okay, he said, I want you to tell me what you can't do or what you're weak at. And of course, my immediate answer was, I can do anything and I'm not weak at all. And then he started listing things. And he said, can you do this or can you do that? And I was like, well, no. And he said, here's the deal. He said, a true warrior, a true soldier has to be able to admit what he can't do for two reasons. Number one, so that he's not asked to do something that will kill himself or others. And two, so that his leadership can then send him to the right damn school to learn how to do it and make him better. And that really stuck with me all the way through. But it goes back to being able to admit to yourself and to others openly, everybody on the team, no secrets. I can kick doors like crazy. I can't set a breaching charge. I'm not that good at it. Okay, well, we're going to teach you how to do that, whatever it might be. Those are just simple examples. But it's being able to admit that vulnerability. And I think that's one of the things that people have a real problem with today in our society is admitting that they can't do anything. Because if they run up against something they can't do, they look it up on Google or some browser, and then they come back and try to do it rather than ask for assistance or work with somebody, the neighbor across the street to do landscaping, or you helping him fix his lawnmower or whatever it might be, you work as a team to make that happen. And I saw that very much, particularly on my first tour in Vietnam. We were working with mountain yards in our camp who came from multiple villages around the area. That's who we were working with to, to make life better for them, to bring them in, to train them, and to put them on our teams. It's the same situation that you were in, Blaine, at Anaconda. We'd, we'd bring them in, and there'd be 10, 12, 14, maybe 25 SF guys in a, in a compound with 250 mountain yards who could at any time turn their weapons on you because you've provided them all with M16s and lots of ammunition, and you had to gain that rapport. We did it in a myriad of ways. One of the ways that we showed that we really cared about what they were doing is we ran what they called medcaps, medical capabilities exercises, where we would go out to their villages and we'd dig boils out of little boys' asses because that's what they needed. And we showed them how to better their living conditions, how to improve what they already had and understand, don't take a dump in the creek above the, the village, do it below. And all of a sudden, a lot of dysentery and everything else went away. And so in working with them and showing that you really cared about them, and you pointed that out earlier, Blaine, when you show them that you really care within that community, then you start getting responses back. Yeah. So the big gap that I see is just this, this individuality that our way of life has championed. And that's cool. It really, really is. I mean, we are very empowered, more so than ever. The problem is, is everyone doesn't go to SEER school and get their ass beat and learn their own limitations. You know, you, you can Google anything and all of a sudden you're, you're an expert watching a YouTube video. I mean, I can pretend to be a carpenter and I'm, I'm like the worst ever with stuff like that, you know? Oh, I got the YouTube video. It's like, you know, trace, it's like the, the equivalent of when you were a kid and you had tracing paper and it's that real thin stuff and it makes you a great drawer. Like, does it? No, not at all, but you can pretend to be if you want to. Right. And so it's this, this ego boost all the time about all the things that you can do because you've got this computer in your pocket and you're so empowered. And 
you know, that's one of the things that I know team red, white, and blue has just didn't does a really good job of is, you know, it takes this veteran way of life of service to a team service to a higher purpose. That's the same stuff that, that GORUCK has kind of encapsulated is it's not about you. And, you know, how do we, how do we reconcile that stuff this day and age? Yeah, I think, I think it's tricky because we do kind of celebrate the individual and especially uh, with younger folks, whether it's like having a YouTube channel or a big Instagram following, it seems like the things that a lot of people are striving for now are sort of these massive expressions of individuality and sort of followership. And I think, I think it's okay, like you said, to want to be who you are and like, you know, feel empowered to, to do that. But, you know, one of the things that we talked a lot about at Team RWB was this notion that we just don't care who gets credit for it. And it sounds simple, but it was a big, big deal there. It was just this notion that like, look, think about what we can accomplish if we don't care who gets credit for it. And it made the team work better together. It made us work better with other organizations in our space. Like we used to have this conversation around abundance mindset, which was like, if another nonprofit got a big sponsorship deal and we felt like maybe we were doing more work than them, or we should have got that deal or whatever. The only acceptable response was good for them. They're working, they're trying to serve veterans. They just got a fat check. Good, good for them. It was the only acceptable response. One of the things that ultimately ended up like kind of rocket shipping the organization was that the bench got super deep. Because we ended up with eight or nine people or, or more probably that could literally represent the organization at the highest level and did. That's a fact. We had people that were willing to leave their jobs at Microsoft and Amazon and other places to sort of take less money and to be down the kind of org chart a little bit, Team RWB, knowing that they just they cared about what they were doing every day. And what happened was we had this sort of cadre of you know eight or 10 or 12 people that were out there basically operating at the same level of capability as me as the executive director. And so I didn't have to be on a plane 50 weeks a year to be seeing Boeing in Seattle or seeing Microsoft or seeing, you know, Walmart in Bentonville. I could, I could send Brandon Young to Bentonville. I could send him to Portland to see Nike. I could send Joe Quinn to Barclays or Goldman Sachs in New York city. I could send Garrett Cathcart to Coca-Cola or Home Depot. And I did. And the reason that it worked so well there was that, no one was trying to get a big Instagram following. Nobody was trying to be the next celebrity veteran. They were just trying to, to serve the veterans of their community. And they wanted to be part of something cool and work with people they liked and respected. And now you see the Joe Quinns and the Garrett Cathcarts and the Brandon Youngs and the Sarah Roberts of the world all like holding very significant positions of responsibility at other organizations as they've kind of like matriculated and there's this like team RWE mafia that's out there now. But for four or five years, people didn't really know their names. They had like 200 Instagram followers, but it, it wasn't about that. But look what they were able to do as a result. It's interesting you mentioned that because one of the, one of my favorite things that Ronald Reagan had sitting on his desk in the Oval Office was a small cast that said, anything can be done as long as you don't care who takes credit for it. Hey, so Blaine, I oftentimes forget that not everyone's been a part of all of our conversations and some people might not know Team Red, White, and Blue. So, because it, it's in a lot of ways very similar to Go Rock. You know, there's a physical element to it. There's an adversity element to it. You know, shared suffering, whether it's moving or showing up and doing push-ups or going for a run. What is team, team Red, White, and Blue? And, and what was the model and why was it, and is it still so successful? Yeah, so if you, it's, it's hard a little bit to imagine now, but if you go back to like 2012, 
um, and you think about what was going on in sort of the veteran space, what America was trying to do to support veterans back then. You had, you know, Afghanistan had really lit back up at that point. Iraq was starting to taper down a little bit, but it had been nasty in 06, 07, 08, right? And so there'd been this huge spike of violence in both theaters, lots and lots of casualties, a lot of kids coming home with, you know, burns and amputations and head injuries and all this stuff. There was, a, there was at that time a very visible and a very prominent sort of cost of, of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And so the country was trying to do everything they could to take care of all these wounded service members. And there were enough of them that were sort of visibly traumatically wounded that it made sense at the time to like, let's put all of our money into treatment for, you know, adaptive sports and amputations and, and, and burn victims. And like what basically ended up happening was we were lavishing support. We were just like piling wheelbarrows full of support on the people that were the most severely and the most obviously wounded. And it's, it, and it's fine. Like it's nobody's fault. That makes sense to do that. Everyone was just trying to do what they could. But in doing that, we sort of we made two big mistakes. One was we, in many cases, sort of retarded the progress of some of these folks to actually get back to being their best self because we just we just made them too entitled, frankly. Um, and the other thing we did was we completely missed the boat on the, the tens and hundreds of thousands of other veterans out there that were coming home from war, challenged in some way, shape, or form, whether that was just transitioning out of the military back to civilian life, uh, post-traumatic stress, mild traumatic brain injury, whatever. And so we had this massive, massive population of veterans that were struggling in their own ways, most of the time very quietly, without really knowing what to do about what was going on in their lives. Jason, you and I have stories kind of like that, right? So we, we've lived that experience firsthand. And what Team RWB set out to do in the early days was to go after this big population of veterans. Like, did we want to support the guys with amputations? Sure, absolutely. But we wanted to turn our focus on this massive population of veterans out there that were having a hard time transitioning back out of the military and getting on with their lives. So we decided we would do it in ordinary ways that would help them right there in their communities without it feeling clinical or intrusive or any of that. So we basically started setting up run groups in cities across the country, like six cities, I think at first we started in, and we had Wednesday evening run groups where veterans could just get together, show up, it's not fancy, we'll go for a run together. And then people started talking and they started liking each other and they started getting bigger run groups. And then there was a Wednesday run group and a Saturday CrossFit class. And then there was a Sunday yoga and then, and so on and so on and so on. And basically what we did was we built this, you know, chapter-based organization that's now in over 200 cities where veterans were getting together literally tens of thousands of times a week to go for a run, take a CrossFit class, do yoga, do a volunteer project, um, have a piece of pizza, stuff like that. And what we found was that our hunch was correct in that what people really were looking for was community. They were looking for support. They were looking for positive ways to connect with other human beings, their fellow veterans and the other members of the community that weren't veterans so that they could make friends, uh, have resources that they needed, get physical exercise, feel challenged, feel like part of something, feel like they belonged in something. And, and the big thing that sort of made Team RDB really blow up was this concept of being a community of communities. So it wasn't just that the individual chapter was doing things, but you felt like you belonged to this sort of national movement, this organization of people wearing the red t-shirt with the eagle on it, and if you were in DC for business or in Tampa for vacation, you could just like go in the Facebook group and you would see what was going on and you would show up and you would just be welcomed with open arms. And 
I think for a lot of veterans and their families, um, you know, that certainly didn't cure their brain injury. It certainly didn't like uh, take the place of real kind of mental health care if they needed it. But it provided most veterans with most of what they needed. And uh, yeah, that was a pretty big deal. So your word from earlier, interdependency, how, how did that work? I mean, you have this population that's maybe predisposed to adversity, which I think is an important thing. If you're going to build a community or a family or a friendship, you need to go do something. You can't just sit around and watch Netflix and chill to quote your blog post. And, and like, it's not going to be okay. That's not how you build lasting relationships. And so this veteran population predisposed to adversity and, to, you know, even when you get out and you say, I don't want to do PT physical training anymore, you kind of like it when you do it with other people. And yet, what was the role or how did the interdependency work amongst the, the members? Yeah, so I mean, I think shared hardship kind of is a part of it, right? I mean, a lot of these folks were not in the same physical shape that they were in when they were in the military. And so they were having to get over themselves a little bit to show up and participate in some of these things. And so that was kind of the, the beginning of it. But, you know, more importantly, in terms of interdependency, what you start to see when you get enough people together doing things, especially hard things, is that we're all going to have our strengths and weaknesses to, you know, to Richard's point. And so you might have a guy that shows up that's 30 pounds overweight and is struggling with the run or the CrossFit class or the ruck, but that dude got out, went to grad school, has an awesome job and like can maybe help the dude who's, you know, much more physically strong, get into a, a, a good job. Or maybe that guy um, just finished or that gal just finished the MBA program at the university of South Florida and they can help you, go through the admissions process to get in and do those kinds of things. And oftentimes it was literally just having uh, another person to talk to. Like we had, as you know, we had sort of this ad hoc CrossFit gym that we built in our office in Tampa. We had class every night, 6 PM free for the community and people would show up and they would all be quiet and nervous and they weren't sure whether they should have come or not. Like, Oh boy, what's going to happen? The middle school dance or something, right? Yeah. 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 Right. <laughs> After class, everyone's talking, everyone's high-fiving. And it's like, oh, you were at Fort Hood? I was also at Fort Hood. Oh, when you were there? And they're going on and on and on. And you, and you start to see some of these conversations getting into, when were you in Baghdad? Oh, do you remember? Did you ever go there? And like, you, you'd get people getting into some relatively serious stuff pretty quickly, just because they had that, that little bit of shared hardship together. And we, not to use too many examples, but we used to have a a lunch uh, at our at our office. We would just have a free lunch. You know, we could come and have lunch once a month, and like twenty five people would always show up. And I remember Jenny walking out of there one day after having lunch. And she walked into my office and she said, "I just talked to everybody in there, and I think everyone there at lunch needed to be here today." And I was like, "That's fucking cool." Yeah, that's cool, right? And so moving moving toward where we are now, I think COVID's bringing out a bunch of stuff that we've been able to keep it repressed a little bit, right? I mean, you've got, how are we defining our own communities? How are we trying to be happy? You know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? I mean, how are we pursuing this? And what's the role of kind of sharing your time with others in, in community? I mean, how, how, to me, it's just fulfillment. I mean, I, I can go sit in the corner with, of, of the office with my laptop and do all of my work and, and sort of, you know, I've just kind of built like that. Like I can just do my stuff, you know, and at my worst, I can take my ball and go home if something doesn't go my way. That, that kind of got beat out of me in the army though, right? They, they, don't, they don't let you take your ball and go home. It doesn't work. 
right? Yeah, your kids don't either, by the way. <laughs> no, they don't. So you've got a lot of people now who have identified themselves as part of, you know, this community or that community. We started out as individuals. Now we weren't born into a tribe. We kind of were glorified as individuals, our lives, and now we're given the opportunity to kind of choose, right? It, you know, say maybe Facebook has replaced the church in some macro level. And, and I, not getting too judgmental about that, but I lament it mostly because it's substituting real world for virtual world. It's, it's substituting a, a submission to something greater than yourself for the pure glorification of, of the individual. And you see this, and yet you also see the human spirit yearns to be part of something bigger than themselves. And what do you see going on now with just how communities, how's the world reacting now, even as opposed to what, two months ago, three months ago? Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty wild. I mean, we're fortunate in that we live in a, in a place in the world right now where the sun is shining and it's warm and people can kind of get outside. I, I don't live in a super densely populated city. So, you know, here in Tampa where I live, like people are out they're walking their dogs, they're pushing their kids in strollers, they're riding bikes with their kids, their skateboards out. In some ways, it's been very heartening to, to sit in my driveway or in my garage and look out and see all these people who I've never seen before, you know, cruising by and enjoying the sunshine and getting some exercise and some fresh air and spending time together, like at least in their kind of nuclear family units. Yeah, I know it's challenging. Like our kids drive us crazy sometimes, and I'm sure that they're sick of us too. But I think we're starting to at least recognize that there are some ways that we can spend time together if we have to, that are healthy and productive and, and good for us. But I've also seen a lot of my friends, at least, really starting to jones for time together now. I mean, the, the people at the CrossFit gyms, the people in the rut clubs, the people that I hang out with, you know, are all starting to think about like, how can we create a workaround to spend some time together? You know, you're seeing like virtual dinner dates with couples, you're seeing virtual happy hours, which is like, well, good, use the technology as a tool to facilitate the actual relationship and not as a substitute for it, right? This is the same thing you get taught when you're doing land navigation, right? Is that a GPS is a tool and it's a freaking good one. So by all means, learn to use it and use it when you can, but never forget that it's a tool and it is not a replacement for being able to read road signs, read a map, know your pace count and things like that, right? And I think that's the way that I'm starting to look at the use of technology. It is never going to replace real relationships. It can only be used to facilitate them. So the idea that I could text you and see if you want to go for a ruck, that's great. That's a useful use of technology. You know, the idea that I could FaceTime with my mom and talk to her when I can't go visit, good, useful use of technology, but it, it, it cannot be used as a replacement. So I, I don't really want to FaceTime with you while we go rock. You know, it's, it's like, that doesn't sound that fun to me. You know, yeah. I, I really love that analogy about the land nav, the GPS, cause it just feels like a weird space. And I know Rich doesn't really, you know, he's a, a generation earlier in this, this zoom stuff and all of this hangouts. I mean, he's, he's adaptive. He's adaptive kind of guy. I'm never count Richard Rice out. Hey, right? I'm, I'm into it. La last Sunday night, I was on with four other couples on zoom playing cards against humanity. 
I'm sure Nancy didn't set that up. I'm sure you you took care of everything, right, Rich? She did not. I set everything up. <laughs> it, it amazed her as much as it's amazing you right now. <laughs> well, when I'm hat, I'm hat. But again, it was it was yeah. doing just what Blaine was talking about. It's a it's it's a tool. It's a way to facilitate relationships in these times, but it does not replace those relationships. Yeah, I mean, I've got a buddy and like, and we're, we were talking to another couple just earlier today, like, can we get together for a bike ride? Like, could we do a socially distant bike ride? Because like, we just, we actually want to see each other, Yeah, you know, and, and be there in person. And like, if we have to do it at a socially safe distance, like, maybe we could sit around our pool on four different corners of the pool and still have a beer on Saturday. Like, we're jonesing for it. Like, we want to see people. And I mean, to use the, to go back to the TMRWB days, we had a completely distributed organization, right? So we only had a couple people in every city and like we were 30 something employees in 20 something cities. So we did most of our business on video teleconference and through email and all of that. But I'll tell you what, we were a hugging organization. Like our team really liked each other and we made a point to get the whole team together at least a couple times a year. And it was like long lost friends. It was, it was really cool. Like to be able to make sure that we still had that type of thing. And I don't know. I mean, I think that going forward, I've seen a lot about like, well, we're just, we're going to do virtual learning now and everyone's going to work remotely. Like I would be a little careful about some of those predictions. Like there will be some changes, there will be some shifts and I'm not like Nostradamus or anything. I would guess that it is not going to be nearly as profound a shift as a lot of people are saying in terms of everyone's going to want to work remote now. And we're going to realize kids don't even need to go into schools. Bullshit. They don't. My kid needs to go to school. Like they need time away from me. They need time with other kids. They need to fight over toys in the playground. They need to be around other adults and learn to respect other adults. And, and they need to be able to be taught from them things that I can't teach them. I need to be able to put my hand on your shoulder and look you in the eye occasionally at the office and have a conversation. Like, I don't think it's going to change as much as we think it's going to change. I don't know. We'll so you, you almost answered my, my question that I was about to ask, which is, is this a generational thing, this need to connect with others in the real world? Or is this just a, a universal thing? I mean, to me, it's, it's just, you might fight it a little bit harder the more that you embrace technology when you're young, you're just so comfortable with it. Is there a great a risk of greater backlash then? Yeah, maybe. So it's definitely true. Like if I, if I have someone that's going to do some work on my house, right? We're, we have, we have a pool and we're thinking about having a pool service. So someone to come out and take care of a pool for us. And Jenny is like looking at things online and is like, what should I do? Should I sign up? And I was like, no. So what should I do then? I said, tell them to come to the house so I can talk to them. Right. So I'm 41. I want to talk to any prospective pool guy, right? I want to, I want to like hear what he's got to say and see what his personality's like and see what this, what's really going on here. And people like half a generation, even behind me, are totally comfortable finding the best one on you know Yelp or Angie's list and and selecting them. And and in fact, they don't want to meet them in, in a lot of cases, right? Like they'd rather not have to do that. So there's something about that that's been going on for for a long time. But I think as it pertains to the people that are meaningful to us in our lives, like we still have to have those 100 to 150 relationships, you know, that sort of Dunbar's number, that, that hunter-gatherer tribe worth of people. We still need that number of people in our lives, those meaningful relationships to be fostered in some way. And I think there, there are certainly going to be people that are growing up with technology and thinking they don't need this, but I mean, I'll take a little bit of a flyer here and say they're not going to be well 
And I think that's a big distinction too. This goes back to my, you can stay in your house and breathe and get enough calories, but that doesn't mean you're well. It doesn't mean you're surviving. It doesn't mean you're doing shit for anybody or making a dent in this world. So those are the basic needs, right? I mean, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the basic needs, food, water, shelter, security, sleep, stuff like that, right? I mean, the next rung up, psychological needs. I mean, community is foundational in that. You need that. Yeah. The question is, is how do you get it? From your, the life that you've led, the, the army to also very much embracing technology. I mean, I think you're, you're, you're like me exactly in that regard. Like, it's not like I'm, I'm moving off into the middle of nowhere and I don't have a phone. I mean, I have a phone, I'm on it a fair amount. And I know you are too. It's technology as a tool. It just, what's the right, what's the right answer? You know, I, I don't know what the right answer is. And I suspect it's different for everybody, but I will tell you that like, for me, and like, I just can give you that. The most important thing for me is to feel that I am engaged and present as, as high a percentage of my day of my life as I can be. Right. Like this is a sort of a weird thing, but I'll give it to you anyway. You know, if you call, if you used to call somebody on the phone and they were already on the phone, you'd say the, the line was busy. Yeah. Do you know what, what, how, what the Brits say for that? It's engaged. No, I, I called, but it was engaged, right? Yeah. I don't know why that matters to me, but I think the difference between those two things is super profound, right? And so my goal, whether it's my use of technology or just in like how many things I'm trying to do at one time or in a given day, is that like my goal for myself is to feel engaged like you could, you could put in the term alive in there. I know, you know, you, you know what that means and how I feel about that. Like I want to feel alive. I want to feel engaged and present as high a percentage of my day as I possibly can. And I don't want to feel sort of busy, which to me means I'm distracted. I'm trying to do too many things at once. And if I'm being honest on some of my zoom meetings, if it's boring, or I'm not involved. Like I'm clicking over on different tabs. I'm trying to answer emails. Like I don't enjoy that. It's a reality of my life. And so as I think about this, for me at least, as it relates to technology, I've got to figure out a way to use it to help me to feel engaged in what I'm doing. And I got to be careful of ways that it makes me feel like busy or distracted from what I'm doing. And that's, as you know, like you pull up the phone, it's right next to you all the time. Like it's easy. You get a little bit bored and you just look at it. It's like instinctive. And I'm trying really hard to sort of break that kind of instinctive pattern of like, oh, I'm at a stoplight. Let me reach for my phone. Like that's, that's terrible. It's more addictive than heroin. Yeah. We, you gotta be better than that, but you gotta be aware of it and yep. you gotta want to do something about it. And, and I personally do, and I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but like, and it's still hard. Yeah. It's still hard. And you've got a lot of willpower and a lot of discipline. And yet, you know, it's just really hard because I fight the same fight. I don't want to have to have the dependence on that, but it is. Yeah. How, how dumb are you when you're, when you're just grabbing it and you're just like mindlessly rolling, like you're not alive, you're not engaged when you're doing that. And so it just seems like such a waste of time. And I'm not trying to like rail against smartphones or whatever at this point, but like figure, figure out a better way. So what's the holistic approach then, right? Because technology is not going anywhere. Like, how do you take a holistic approach and say, I'm, I'm going to have this technology in my life, but where do you go for fulfillment? Can you get fulfilled? Is it, can it, can a community exist in an online forum only? Oh man, that's a big question. So I'll take the first part first here. I think to answer the first part, which is like, how do you sort of use it as a tool and not as a crutch or, or whatever? 
I think for me, I'm constantly assessing. And I think this is true of like hardware, like my laptop and my phone, but it's also true of like software or, or the internet. I am constantly trying to assess, am I using this or is this using me? Right. And like we could get into all the conspiracy, Google, big data, la la la. That's not what I mean. I mean, am I being exploited by this technology? Is it, has it trapped me? Am I scrolling? Am I just feeding it things so that it can improve its algorithm? Or am I using LinkedIn to grow my business? Literally, right? And it's easy to be on there all day and be like, no, I need to be, I need to be on social media. It's for work. Like, no, take stock of whether or not your hardware and your software is providing utility and providing value to you and what matters to you. And dude, Google Apps for Business is the greatest thing ever. I mean, can you believe that? You can start a business now and for like nine bucks a month, you can have email domain and, and cloud storage. And for like 200 bucks, you can have a website. It's insanity. It's amazing. So use that shit. It is, but just take a stock of whether or not you're using it or it's using you. And I think that's, at least for me, that's what works. The online community question I'm wrestling with it right now, to be honest with you. Like, I'm going to say, if I had to answer yes or no, I'm going to say yes, but I don't like it. I mean, I, I think it's harder. I think it's less likely. I think like a real human connection matters. Um, you seen Demoli- you seen Demolition Man, the, the movie? Oh, yeah. Right. John Spartan. Yeah. You know, and he, she brings out, he's, he's, uh, Sly's going back to her place. Right. And you know, Sly's thinking he's, he's, it's going to be a good night for him. And so, you know, I forget what the very robotic question was that she asked him, but like, would you like to have relations or something? He's like, Oh yeah, I'd like to have relations. Right. And, and so she's like, okay, I'll be right back. And she comes back with these sort of these, these things that you put on top of your head. And, you know, that's, that's where it goes. It's just a brainwave thing from, because, you know, you can't do anything more than that in that society. That's kind of a a slightly different example. It just popped in my brain. Imagine that. It's not like I always sit and think about them. (laughs) But when you start to say the, the virtual element of some of the best things in life, it's, it's hard to imagine that those can be exclusively virtual or, or we have a language limitation and, you know, love is applied too many different ways. You know, the Greeks had so many different words for the word love. There was romantic love and there was brotherly love and there was all these different kinds of loves. And with us, it's love. And when you start to say community and, and you've got now one word for community, I mean, it's more like we're, we're organized online. That just doesn't sound very cool. So you steal a, a cool world, cool word like community that actually means something. And you say, okay, we're a community now. I think it's a good analogy. I hadn't quite thought about it like that, but this idea that we've sort of bastardized and maybe overextended the word community the way that we have love. I, I hadn't quite thought about that. I think that's really good. Um, you know, I would just say one more thing and, and I'm not like a hippie or anything by any stretch of the imagination, but like I have kids and I have a wife and I have like really good friends. And I've been involved in like some very intense human interactions in my life. And I, I find it very hard to believe that it is possible to replicate or, or replace those very personal, up close human interactions. Like, I just, I don't think you can get some of the things you need from holding your kid or hugging your wife or 
uh, doing other things with your wife, to use your demolition man example, um, or just looking someone in the eye, being able to read their body language. Like, and I know there's AI and there's all these things that will tell us like what exactly all this stuff is. I find it very, very hard to believe. I just, I think there are things going on, you know, whether it's vibrations or whatever, like there are things you pick up in direct human interactions that can't be replaced. Like they can, you can try to replicate them. You can try to like do without them perhaps, but I don't think you can replace them. So like for me, I am going to choose always to keep them. It doesn't mean that I have to do it just to, again, to stay breathing and stay upright, but I want them. I don't think I can be, uh, or like I can live the kind of life I want to live without that kind of stuff. And I think most people can't either. Rich from a, a broader generational approach. That's a gentleman's way of saying something, something, something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I gotcha. I gotcha. <laughs> you know, you're, you're, you're the one we love. Right. You got all the wisdom. And, and what, what do you see as far as just trends of, of evolution of how this, how this has been and, and how it might go or the questions that people might be, be asking as we, as we move forward? Well, I'm going to go back to, to Blaine's comment and your comment about GPS. You know, GPS is wonderful. GPS sucks. Uh, when I go somewhere, it, it's, a, it's a hard map. When it comes to online communities, I think they serve a place in today's society. I'm not exactly sure. I'm with Blaine. I'm not exactly sure where they are or how far they'll go. But I use a very simple analogy. I can show you a 4K or 8K definition picture of a strawberry. And I can explain to you what that strawberry is and the consistency. But unless you actually pick one up, you'll never know what a strawberry tastes like. <laughs> a strawberry. <laughs> a strawberry. <laughs> that kind of goes back to Demolition Man too, but never mind. When I, when I look at all of the phases that I've been through, when I was going through training, there was nothing like a GPS. And so it was all maps. It was all protractors. It was all compasses. And that's how you moved from point A to point B. We didn't have computers in the SF groups until about 1985 is when computers actually showed up in the groups. And we didn't even know what they were or what to do with them until we hired some 74 Deltas, which that's a particular Army MOS for computer programmers, and brought them into the units and had them explain to us how to use these things. That brought me up to think of computers, GPSs, things of that nature as a tool. And that fits right back in with what Blaine was saying. I consider all these things tools because I go back to my early days and what I learned to do and how I learned to do things. But I mean, do you think everybody would sign up for special forces if you just said, hey, you get all the coolest tools? Everybody would probably sign up for it, but very few would make it through. Yeah. I guess what I'm getting at is I don't think you would have the level of fulfillment. I mean, you wake up in the morning, you go do PT with the guys and you go back and everyone's doing their own jobs. And then, you know, you sink back up to go to the range and then, you know, you're, you're there all night until everything gets cleared out and it sucks and you're, and you're doing it together. And then, you know, you wake up the next morning and you do it all over again. And then you deploy together and you do these things together in, in the real world. And technology is a tool. And I, I believe it's a false idol. So this idea, and I, I agree with you, Blaine, I don't think we're going to see this 
huge shift to where I think we're in a honeymoon period. I don't think everybody is just going to all of a sudden the world is overnight going to become digital unless we're really forced into it by, by greater plagues and stuff like that. And in, in some regards, it's, we've never been more prepared to be able to face this down than we are now. You couldn't do this 10 years ago. I mean, it, it wasn't a thing. I mean, the internet would have just broken people trying to do video stuff. So then you'd have more phone calls and conference calls. And then instead of, you know, playing on your, your email during the zoom calls, you'd be doing it on your conference calls. And that used to be a thing. And so I, I think there's, there's kind of a lot of, it's just a moving target right now. Right. Yeah, it is. I mean, the other thing I would say, and I think a lot about this too, is like, you, you should consider whether or not the use of the tool is making you dumber or making you less capable as a human. Yep. And again, I'm not like a crazy survivalist or whatever, but like human beings going way, way back. I mean, think about people navigating by the stars across the Pacific Ocean or, you know, people out in the woods that could smell. I mean, we have, we have desensitized ourselves and dumbed ourselves down to such a great extent through the amount of stimulation we have in our lives now that we are less capable human beings by a lot than we used to be. And we think we're more capable because we have all these tools, but we're not. Without our tools, we are not very capable anymore. And to me, that's concerning, right? I think about this even like take a simple example like fitness or human performance, physical performance. Like I don't like to wear all the wearable technology and all this stuff because I don't want to lose touch with how my, my body actually feels. Like I want to know when I'm putting in enough effort or when I should throttle back a little bit. And maybe I'll use some of these things as a tool, but like, I'm just not interested in becoming completely out of touch with not only the world around me, but my own physiology, my own feelings, my own emotions. And the more you rely on these amazing pieces of technology that completely replace or supersede gifts and, and capabilities that you were born with, they're just going to go away. They're going to atrophy. You're going to lose them. And we could lose them societally, right? It's not like you or I lose the ability to smell a bear in the woods. Like we, we could have like whole societies of people that lose core human capabilities and we maybe never give them back. And so that is concerning to me. I just think we're way more capable than we think we are, but we're, we're like smashing it all down. So I think what, what we're all kind of saying though is, look, these are technology is a tool. Individuals have the opportunity more now than ever to use it as a tool, but you still have to do things in the real world that are hard. You, you, and and that's, that's to prepare yourself as an individual. And then to kind of join a team or join a community, you have to, you have to put yourself out there in a way that is not inertia. Inertia is I can, I can order everything to my house from Amazon and that's the easy path. And everything is the easy path. And you get dumber when everything that you do is easy. And so, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a rallying cry to just get, in, inspire some people out there to start asking the right questions. I mean, when you say, hey, is the technology making you dumber? I mean, I feel like a fool when I'm listening to someone on my phone tell me which way to go and I'm screaming at my phone inside my head, of course, right? Cause always look cool and, and all that stuff. But it's like, wh why didn't I do this a little bit better? I just, I just 
became subservient to my phone and I don't have a backup plan. Now, granted, it's not a life or death situation. Maybe you then plan for backup plans, but is it making us dumber? Yeah. I mean, I, we all know, I mean, land, land navigation or navigation was something that we were very much in tune with. And it's a perishable skill. You have to keep doing it. And so is community. Presence implies interest. You as an individual have to show up. There's an inner, inner dependency that you have with others who are in that community. And they have the same reciprocal feelings for you. And I, I believe that's going to be very difficult to replicate in, in a purely online environment. And I think that people are going to just be starving to get out and go for this bike ride that you're talking about, or, you know, hopefully not have to drink on four corners of the pool, but maybe you can, you know, actually enjoy the whole pool. And, you know, I think we're going to see that. So what's your sort of conclusion or big, big takeaways? Oh, man. Um, I would, so I'll put it into, into a couple little buckets. One is use technology as a tool to help you build community, but don't think you can replicate it. Number two, use technology as a way to enhance your ability to be a more capable human, but do not let it allow you to be less capable human. Um, and the third thing is acknowledge the fact that there are some things you can't explain about interpersonal interactions that you probably want and need more than you think you do. So even if, you know, whether it's this isolation period during COVID or your whole life of not, you know, being engaged with people, I think the fruit of doing that is by far worth the, the discomfort of having to lean into it a little bit. And uh, I, I just, I think everyone will find that true if they, if they do it. And, and how important to you just at a very visceral level is the community and communities that you're a part of on, on your happiness. And, and how much of that are you able to go to that well right now? So it's very important to my happiness. And I've got some like sort of personal case studies on this where I can like map, basically map my happiness uh, based on how engaged I feel with a community or multiple communities and, and when I don't. So I know through experience, it's very, very important to my kind of overall fulfillment and happiness. Um, you know, I, I'm working on it right now. I think the biggest thing for me is that we're, we're actively trying. So like I was texting with a buddy about like, let's go for a bike ride on the river walk this weekend and we can keep our distance. Or, you know, I think you've seen me like we, we clean our gym and say so like, we basically have opened up our garage gym, which is pretty, pretty well equipped kind of CrossFit gym to say like, if you want to come train in our gym, cause your gym's closed or whatever, you can come use our equipment and train in our gym. Yep. Um, we try to like open up our pool kind of in the same way. Like if, if we're not home or whatever, like you can just kind of come around the back, come in the screen and get in the pool with your kids. Like we're trying really hard to, uh, to still feel like we're connected with folks in a way that's kind of socially responsible given the pandemic. But, um, it's a top priority for us. We are constantly trying to find ways to feel like we're engaged with the folks around us. And sort of same question to you, Rich. I mean, you're, you've been a part of communities and teams your whole life. I mean, how, what has that done for your kind of sense of fulfillment? Well, I think you've, uh, you, you've said the word itself, and that is fulfillment. One of the things that I think that, that everyone needs to understand, and it goes back to what we were talking about earlier and what Blaine talked about in particular, you have to acknowledge your own vulnerability. And then you need to look at your community, the humanity, and understand that that humanity is going to be not complete. They have vulnerabilities also. And anything you can do to assist them, 
when I look out at a community, I look at something that I can help with. What can I do? Yeah, yeah, I got it. I'm old, all that stuff. But what can I do? And as I walk around my community, take the dog, ruck, ruck for a couple of miles, I run into people that can use my assistance sometimes. Single, single little old ladies that are in wheelchairs and stuff. And anything I can do to assist them, I do. Still maintaining that, that social distancing and all that other stuff. But is there anything I can do to impart kindness and understanding and respect to the people of my community? And so I want to be a leader of that community and work with those people to assist them in any way I can, mentally as well as physically. It's nice to be needed, right? Yeah, absolutely. All right. So in conclusion, parting thoughts are Blaine's been a dear friend to us for, for years now. He's on GORUCK's board of advisors, you know, worked with him at Team Red, White, and Blue, worked with him at, at GORUCK, you know, share a, a common past in Army Special Forces, in, in you know, this sort of post-9-11 universe. And you know, I, I have really trusted his counsel and his judgment for a really long time now. And I would recommend that to a lot of people. So I know, Blaine, you've started a new venture and I wanted to give you the opportunity to sort of tell the folks what you're up to, because I'll tell you what, if, if I were a business out there in a time of crisis, and that's what this is for a lot of businesses and a lot of people, you've got some that are susceptible to the, to the crisis, like the, the storm will overwhelm them. And you have some that are able to just kind of stay calm and rise above. And you're very much able to stay calm and rise above. And so let's hear what you're up to. Well, thanks, man. I wasn't, wasn't prepared to, to make a plug, but I appreciate it. Um, my former colleague at Team RWB, Brandon Young, he and I also have a very similar background. He was an Army Ranger for 10 years. We met actually in corporate America, fresh out of the military. And then we worked together for several years at Team RWB, trying to grow that organization. He and I have just formed a partnership. We have a, an organization called Applied Leadership Partners. And what we're really looking to do is to serve organizations that are in need of a little bit of counsel, uh, whether it's to grow, deal with adversity, or, or really get going. So one of the things we found in growing and leading organizations is that it's, it's one hard, but it's also kind of lonely. And I think uh, one of the things that we're doing now is working with a number of organizations to uh, think through the challenges of leadership, to get their teams to work better together, communicate, um, so that they can be sort of authentic, meaning true to themselves, they can be uh, service-minded, meaning they put the team and the organization and the mission first, and they can be resilient, which means, and it's particularly topical in times like this, um, you can deal with the bumps in the road and you can come out better on the other side. So um, I've spent the last couple of years doing strategy and leader development stuff. Brandon's been doing this most of his whole life too. And so, yeah, we're just trying to make ourselves available right now to, uh, to help organizations that are, that are in transition um, and I think there's going to be a lot of them over the next couple of years, unfortunately, in some cases. Yeah. The, you say the last couple of years, it's more like the last couple of decades. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it's weird. I, so I, you know, was an army guy for like a decade and then I just oddly found myself in this in like niche of kind of leading and advising small businesses and organizations. And I just, I don't really know how I got there, but like, I think maybe it's cause I grew up the son of a, a you know, of a, of a lawn and pool service family <laughs> And so I just have this like really like deep burning interest in kind of small and mid-sized businesses that employ real people and have a real product or service and have real customers and are just out there trying to make it in the world. 
And right now they're just being crushed by this COVID-19 situation. And like, I'm not quite sure what to do about it. And so this was sort of the answer that Brandon and I came up with is we're going to figure out a way to help these folks to, uh, to deal with this adversity, to give them some good solid business advice and some leadership advice and be a partner with them and kind of walk this path, whatever it's going to look like alongside them to, uh, to come out better on the other side. So we're hoping to do it for as many folks as we can. Well, if you're out there and, and that's something that you need, I, I can't think of anyone better that you should call up than, than Blaine. So get after it. That's right. Chaos is opportunity and, and might as well seize it. And, and there's no shame in asking for help. So, you know, that's kind of the, what communities are built on is you ask other people for help and you're, you happen to be really good at that. Building businesses is kind of about community building all the time. Can't think of anybody better, Blaine. Thanks, man. You've done that your whole career and it's been awesome to chat with you about community building here on Glorious Professionals and until next time. All right, guys. Thanks. Thank you, Blaine. All right. So it's, it's just us in the garage now. Blaine is no longer staring back at us from his screen. It's, it's always great to, to chat with that guy. I mean, I've had a lot of conversations with him about a lot of stuff and he has a way of succinctly putting things that makes you remember it. He really does. And he's, he's got a great way of addressing issues and making them real life so that people understand them. He, he doesn't speak in esoteric terms. He speaks in language that everyone can understand and makes it very clear what he's saying. And so to, to stress, as we did at the outset, I mean, we have more questions than answers in this. This is not something where we're sitting here with, with the crystal ball and pretending to have all the answers. It's just sometimes you have to know, especially when there's so much change going on, you have to know which questions to ask. You have to know what to consider. And, you know, it's just when, when you've seen the kind of, of human situations and the kind of community building and the kind of what makes people happy across all different spheres of from war and business and love and life, when, when you have this breadth of experience like Blaine does, there's just a lot of wisdom in that. And, you know, seeing how people are happy and, and so much of that to us is based upon community building. And as Blaine said, the sort of interdependency, the, the, to be needed and, and to need. And to, and to understand that you have vulnerabilities and that you need to accept them and understand them and admit them. And you need to understand that the people around you they have the same types of vulnerabilities. They not, may not be exactly what you have. There's some things they can't do. There's some things they can do. And if you work together as a community to support each other, you can get far farther than you ever thought you could. Here you got, what, three Green Berets talking about this stuff. And what we're really talking about is not to pretend like you can do everything on your own. Right. Because you can't. What we're talking about is mindset, a mindset for each and every individual to understand where you fit into community. And, and you know, it, it really is that, that quote that you had about to be a great teammate, first you have to be a great individual. And that just applies, just magnify that out. If you want to... Right now, I mean, you've got healthcare workers, you've got all different kinds of people who are serving others. 
Absolutely. The better they are at their job as an individual, the more they're able to help others. You have to take care of yourself. If you're out there and you're, you know, you're the breadwinner in your family, or you've got to figure out a way to make ends meet, you've got to get food on the table for your family. Other people's livelihoods are dependent upon you. You have to take care of yourself. You have to get some sleep. You have to get some sunshine. You have to do something to preserve your sanity. In, in especially when there's a lot of stressors and chaos is sort of raining down upon you and you have to take care of yourself. And that's the inherent dilemma in all of this is it's really easy to glorify the individual. And that speaks to some little voice that we have in our head. You know, Freud wrote books about this, I'm pretty sure, right? Oh yeah. And, and it's really easy to kind of manipulate that and frankly, to be manipulated. And, exactly. And, and I believe our way of life is such that you need to you need to submit to something higher than yourself. It's not about you. And right. yet there's that dilemma, you got to be a great individual as well. True. You you have to be the individual that becomes part of the team, that becomes part of the community, that becomes part of the nation. Amen. And technology and all this Zoom stuff, it's a tool Great tools. It's been a lot of fun chatting about community and stuff like that tonight. We really appreciate your time and thanks for listening. We'll see you on the next one. Thank you very much. 